and uh, we're going to jump right into this text this morning. I've already given you some background as we, we opened up for the testimony time, and so I'm going to focus our attention on verses 5 through 9. And in 5 through 9, uh, we see um, in the context of this letter that Paul is encouraging Titus to um, finish the work that has begun there um, and establish leaders or elders for the church. And so this morning, we are going to touch on what it looks like to be an elder or an overseer or a leader in the church. Amen? Are you excited about that? Oh, it's like, wow, that's exactly what I was thinking I was going to get this morning. Well, you know, that's what, that's what Paul's talking about, and so we want to stay within the context of the text. And actually, I think there's some really good nuggets that God has for all of us as we, as we think about that. You know, um, I, I already mentioned to you what Crete was like, and as a result, I don't know if you thought about this, but when a new church is started, like the one in Crete, that means that there are probably a lot of new believers. As a matter of fact, in this context, our assumption is that nobody was a believer before Paul and the apostolic team landed on the island. So they land on the island, they preach the gospel, they see people come to know Jesus, they probably in some form or fashion, as we've seen in other texts in scripture, they formed a group or a community to get together like in Acts 2, and they shared what they had, they shared their resources, they shared their knowledge, Um, the the apostolic team gave everything they could to this new church, and in return, the people of the island probably hosted uh, Titus and the leaders in their homes, and they began to meet like a church. And as, as is true with Paul's journey, sometimes he stays for a few days, sometimes he stays for a few weeks, sometimes a couple of years, but he never stays in any place extremely long. He never stays in any place as long as I've stayed at this church for five or six years in the starting of this church. He plants a church, he equips the people that are new believers in their faith, and he either leaves or he leaves some of his leadership team behind to continue the work, and that's what he did here in Crete. And, and, and he left Titus behind and, and or potentially other leaders to equip these believers with the thought that Titus isn't staying. That these leaders are not going to stay, but they truly believe that the work of the gospel, the work of the Spirit of God and the teaching of Scripture were good enough, were enough to strengthen this church to be a church that could sustain itself. So we have this rabble-rouser group of people on this island in Crete who Paul believes not only can receive the gospel, which they do, and not only form a church, but now he's saying to Titus, all right. Raise up some leaders. Install leaders in the church that can take over and lead this church um, in the the years to come. And when when we moved up here, and and my guess is that they were, who knows what their age was in physical life, but we know that they were young in the Lord. Laura and I were not near as young in the Lord probably as these Cretans were, but we were young in age when we moved up to Boston. I moved up to Boston when I was 30. Laura was 28 or 29. Had you had your birthday yet? You know, my wife and I, we were born in different decades, so I'm always, she's so much younger than I am. I, she, was, she was born in the 70s. I was born in the 60s, 68, 70. Yeah. So anyway, 
Um, but I was 30, and uh, I think she was 28, and we came up with a team, and the oldest person on our team was Jeff Bianchi, who was a year older than me, or a year and a half older than me. So he was 31 and a half, and we started a church in Brighton called Community of Faith Christian Fellowship. And we did exactly what uh, Paul did with his team in Crete. We met people, we shared the gospel, those who responded to the gospel, we brought in our homes and we had small groups. Some of them already knew about Jesus. We had the advantage of having believers that were already here. That was nice. And we established a church that started in a living room and grew. But we were young. And so when Titus, or when Paul writes to Titus and he says, establish elders, you know the term elder, you know what it means? It means someone who's older. An older person. Now, we don't interpret an elder in this context as being just an older person. We'll get to that in a minute. But it does mean those who have more experience, more maturity, more leadership to offer those who have less. And so it just so happened that as we started the church, I as the lead elder and my team around me were not so old. But God, by His Spirit, decided to establish something that only he could establish. And what we ended up seeing was a large group of college students and young 20s gather in a gym in Brighton and started to fellowship together, and we birthed a church. As a matter of fact, we birthed a church, and a few years later we established elders, and the elders were so young, I called them my youngers. (laughs) I'd like to introduce you to the youngers of the church. Because David Pucci, who is still with us today, was one of my youngers. He was in his mid-twenties. Steve Priskinis, who is now in Texas, was in his mid-twenties. And then Jeff and I were the ripe old age of 31 and 32, respectively, leading this church. Why, why, why is, that doesn't sound like elders. Why, 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 did, why was that possible? It's possible because God has a heart for establishing churches. Amen. And he's not waiting around for a lot of old people to get together and do something. He's waiting around for any human being who's willing to say, God, I am yours. Do whatever you want to do with me. Form me. Shape me into the person you want me to be. And for those who are hungry and obedient, God forms leadership in. Because what transfers in the kingdom of God is a life that's yielded to Jesus and is yielded to the Word of God. And so when you're around, and I, get, I would guess that if I asked everybody to raise your hand, I would bet that every person in this room has, has had somebody in their life or has somebody in their life right now who is considerably younger than you, that when you're around them, you're stirred to live more like Jesus. Well, how can that be? Because that person has given themselves fully to God, and as a result, in your life, they have, a, they have some leadership. They are leading you to hunger more for Jesus. They're leading you to be set apart for God. That's why Timothy could say, I mean, that Paul could say in his letter to Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you are young, but to establish yourselves in the community with how you live in your doctrine and your faith so that they might be stirred by your life. It's not about our age, it's about our givenness to God. And man, if we are given to God and we are old, watch out. That's even better. And I'm not joking. Because what 
typically happens for elders with gray hair is that over the course of time, we lose our zeal. The cares of the life, the cares of this world that Jesus talks about take root in our life, and we lose the fire that actually inspires people to follow Jesus. So that when we find somebody who's older, somebody in their 40s, graying like me, in their 50s, in their 60s or 70s, and they still have a twinkle in their eye for Jesus, are we impacted by their leadership of life that they've exhibited? There's a, there's a joke in our family about this man that I met who was in his 70s, who was a teacher in the Newton School District. He was a math teacher, and I met him, and he shared his story with me about how he was saved as a 20-something-year-old at MIT. And as he's sharing the story of his salvation, now some 40 or 50 years in the, in the rearview mirror, he starts to cry. And it's almost as if he's taken back and he's taking me with him of the time when Jesus rescued him from his rebellious heart and put him on a track of salvation that transformed his whole existence in the way that he lived and, 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 and knew life. He fell in love with God. And he was sharing with me in his 70s with the same emotion and the same thankfulness that I, I imagine he experienced in his 20s. What did that do to me? I still talk about him. I still think about, God, I want to be like that man when I'm 70 because he's held on to Jesus. I want us to reorient ourselves about what it looks like to be a leader and an elder in the church. Are there some giftings that come along with being an elder? Yes, and Paul addresses those things. But you're going to find out as you read Titus this morning that almost everything about being an elder has to do with the character of the man or woman of God that's, that's responding to him. That as character is formed, the character of God is formed in us, we can't help but lead with our lives. But when we don't allow his character to be formed in our life, then we lead in the opposite direction, don't we? We move people away from God. And so I would say that as we think about this, this challenge to be an elder this morning as we read through it, that we'd say this is for all of us. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy 3 says this, and if someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So it's not wrong for you to say, hey, I want to be a leader in the church because that's honorable. And because what that really means, if God puts you in a place of leadership, and we have so many opportunities to have formal places of leadership, but it's not just about formal leadership. It's about how you how you lead with your life and how people are impacted by your life. If you rise to be a leader or an elder in the church, it's because you've given yourself over to the life of Christ. Read with me in verse 5. Paul says to Titus, I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife. And his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. An elder is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. That's the second time, by the way, that he talks about a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, being hospitable, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout life, a disciplined life. 
He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. So Titus has been given the challenge to complete the work and to appoint elders. And um, completing the work might be what we learned from Brian last week of continuing to disciple and equip the people in the knowledge of God that leads to a godly life. And it also, I think, has to do with him establishing a leadership base or a team that he could leave uh, with the Cretans so that he can move on to the next thing that God has called him to. So completing the work by establishing leadership in the church. We've already talked about what an elder means and uh, what, what that role, um, what that, that, that definition is. But I want to say this that if the church is going to be healthy, if the church is going to be healthy and continue to stay healthy, it needs to continue to see leaders emerge that are equipped and godly in how they live. It's a prayer that we pray every day as a church staff. It's a prayer that we pray every day as as a team of leaders in our movement. God, would you have such a deep impact on the people in our churches that they are given to a fullness of life day in, day out that's yielded to you. May they be so excited about you, Jesus, that they can't contain their love for you and that they would preach the gospel through word and deed and that they would help others um, live for God in their life. We, we in, in di- different ways, we pray that. I pray that all the time. God, would you continue to raise up harvesters, leaders for the harvest? The statistics in Boston are that 3% of people in Boston are active Christians. I don't, I don't know where these statistics come from. I have no, I'm not a statistician, so I have no idea how they, they get that number, but that feels right to me. That about 3% of the people around us, around you, 3% of, of the people around us have an active faith in Christ, which means that 97% of the people around us either don't know Jesus, are moving away from Jesus, or claim to know Jesus, but really don't have any form of life in them that speaks of a life found in Christ, which means that we need life-giving expressions of Christ in our communities, don't we? Do we have enough churches in Boston? We do? We have enough or we don't have enough, Die. Yeah, I see what you're saying. We have a lot of churches, but do we have enough life-giving churches? I don't think we do. I think we need more churches. We need more communities impacted by a life-giving church in their presence. And that's what we're believing for as a staff, that God would continue to strengthen you and strengthen our church so that we could see more leaders raised up to be sources of life in the community. How many of you, uh, when we talk about church and we talk about life-giving, what are we saying? We're saying that it's a place where people are hearing about Jesus and seeing Jesus in your lives. They're they're, they're being equipped to love the Word of God and to live by the Word of God. And that they're experiencing family or community in a way that's transformative. How many of you live over 100 miles away from your family? Do we have quite a few people? Okay, look around. So, you know, 100 miles, maybe that seems close to you. That seems far to me. That's, that 100 miles or more is, is really hard to have a consistent time, family time with somebody. 
So we, over half the room lives a long way away from what is considered family for them. The church needs to be that kind of family. And it needs to be that kind of family for those who are hungering for the kind of family that the church provides, one that has an unconditional love and service at the heart of who it is. Amen. What does it look like to be an elder in this passage of Scripture? So let's look at this. Verse 6. An elder must live a blameless life. And he says this twice. That almost, can I just say, when I was preparing for this message, I'm like, God, I don't even know if I can get up and preach this message until I understand fully what you're saying that I should be. And I, I can't get past that first sentence. How in the world do I or we live a blameless life? Is Paul saying that in order to be an elder, if we, when I see blameless, I automatically inter- exchange that for per- perfect. Without blame. Yeah. There's like, whoa. There's no way. I, can't, I, I actually had to repent to my son after I got out of the car this morning. You know, I didn't even make blameless for the first hour of the day. Or at least in the way that we see blameless. Maybe even the same way that you shared your testimony this morning, Tabby. We see it as I've got to be perfect. But I think that what he says is this. I do believe that as an elder or a leader or a person in in the church, we are living to be holy. But how are we blameless? We're blameless because of Christ. So an elder, and we'll see this at the end of this passage of Scripture, I believe, is blameless and lives a blameless life before people because he is so or she is so dependent on Christ that it's evident that their only hope, their only strength comes from Jesus. Because he makes me blameless. All right, I'm back in the game. I can be your pastor. Because I'm surely not perfect. For any of you who have lived around me long enough, you go, well, we have one imperfect pastor. But I am blameless because of what Christ has done for me. I bear no blame anymore because Jesus has taken my place on the cross. And as a result, and I'm not getting out of it here because I do think he's talking about our behavior. As a result, out of my thankfulness and my desire, I like to say this, I'm always falling towards Jesus. I might be running at times, but sometimes I'm just falling, Dara, in the general direction. Do you understand what I'm saying? I am falling towards God, but I can tell you in my, my greatest days or my worst days, I am calling out for the grace of God to help me because he's the one that makes me blameless. He must be faithful to his wife and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. So here we go again. I was like, Lord, man, this is tough. I mean, how many leaders are there out there that actually, if we, if we take this for what it's saying, actually... Do this. Faithful. I'm faithful to my wife. I've never had an affair. I've never cheated on my wife. I love my wife dearly, but am I faithful to her every day of my life? Absolutely not. I'm a jerk half the time. I'm, all the vows that I prayed and, and communicated to my wife, many times I break my vows in the way that I communicated that I was going to love her. I don't love her in the way that I should love her all the time. And I'm not faithful in that way. But I am faithful 
to her and she to me because of the work that Christ has done in our life. Because I believe that, again, we lean and depend on Jesus. And he is the center of our hope and our existence. And even in our mistakes, and even in our anger, and even in our, our conflict, that at times is godly and sometimes not godly, we call out to Christ. And we say, God, would you help us be good, good lovers of one another? Would you help us to forgive one another? Would you help us to bear with one another? Lord, would you help Laura to bear with me so that we can remain faithful not only in our deeds but in our hearts towards one another? Can I tell you this? I believe that faithfulness, if you are a two-spouse family and single parents, you can remain faithful to the Lord and and, and create this environment just like a two-spouse family can. But faithfulness we were to look at that passage of scripture again, faithfulness to one another creates the opportunity for our kids to live godly lives unto Jesus. The very first thing that kids are looking for in a marriage in their parents is if they're going to follow Jesus is, yeah, they talk about loving Jesus, but do they love one another? Can I hear an Amen. Boy, you're a great leader. You're a great servant in front of the church, and everybody thinks that you're a wonderful woman of God or a wonderful man of God, but behind closed doors where only the kids can see? You're not that loving. You're not that filled with the Holy Spirit. You're not that dependent upon Jesus. And over time, if that is the witness of your life, if that is the rule instead of the exception, and let me remind you that there are times that I'm not that witness either behind closed doors. But in the place, in the home where we are known the most, where we are known the most by our spouse, and if we have children, where our children know us the most, that is where authentic Christianity is revealed. That is where our leadership is born. If we can live dependent on Jesus and humble before God in the context of our family, then the scripture says that we have a good opportunity to lead and manage the church well. But if we are living hypocritically and we are striving to be a leader and an example in the church, but we're not backing that up by what's happening in our home, then that's going to crumble or fall apart. Just follow every fallen leader in the church in the last 10 years, and it started with some indiscretion at home or in the context of their family or life. So God, if I want to be a leader, if I want to lead others by my influence, and again, this is how I want to craft, obviously he's talking about leaders that have an official position in the church, but I want to bring us all into this context. If I want to have an elder leadership role or position in the church, either formally or informally, God, would you shape in private, in secret, or in the place of my most vulnerable existence, would you shape me into a person who is dependent and authentic and real with you there so that when it's asked of me or when it's looked upon me to lead in public, what you see here is what you get there. We use the phrase, we want to walk the talk. We don't want to just talk the talk. We want to walk the talk. And when we don't walk the talk, ask my kids. You know what? My dad doesn't always walk the talk. 
You know what my weapon is? To counterbalance that? Repentance. When my kids say, Dad, you're being a jerk. And by the way, they do say that sometimes. <laughs> Praise the Lord that they feel like they can say that. Or when my wife looks at me with like that look like, be careful, you're crossing a boundary. If I'm walking with Jesus, I'm saying, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then I'm looking to my kids and I'm saying, I'm sorry. I'm looking at Samuel right now. I just looked at him and I had to repent to Samuel yesterday. I pretty much repent every day. <laughs> just want to give you an indication of what your leader looks like. I just I looked at Samuel. I'm like, yeah, I just had one of those situations with Samuel yesterday in the kitchen. But I would think that my kids would say, and I'm not going to put them on the spot because they don't like to be put on the spot. I would think that my kids would say of Laura and I, yes, they're flawed, but their faith in Jesus is off the rails. That it's our desire to depend on God. Faithful. You know, one of the things that I with fear and trembling, when people come and talk to me as a leader, they say one of the biggest witnesses that you have is your kids. And I always say, well, I haven't written the book yet. Still got a five-year-old. And I haven't. And we haven't. But I can tell you that we depend on God to raise our family. And we depend on God to strengthen our marriage. And we depend on God to do what only He can do so that we could have the opportunity to serve and love you, which is what God has called us to do. Oh, my gosh. There's so much good stuff, and it's time to finish. Can I tell you what else that elders in the church do that are, are, are in the context of managing the affairs of the church that this passage of Scripture says? We, as we look through the rest of Scripture to kind of get a snapshot of an elder, we see in Acts 15 that elders settle disputes in the church. For those of you who aspire to be a leader in, in the church, I just want you to know what one of your main jobs is to clean up messes, right? We are, we are in the job of getting ourselves in the middle of messes, and, and trying to bring the grace and the love of Christ in the middle of them, and wisdom, sometimes a rebuke, to help people in conflict. We also see in James 5 that the elders pray for the sick. And I don't think it's saying because the church doesn't pray for the sick. I think that in the context of James, when it says, is anyone sick among you, let him call the elders of the church to pray, pray for the sick so that they may be healed. I think that what God is saying is, I want to heal people in the church. I want to see the sick be healed. And one of the primary purposes of an elder is to lead out in the place of faith to believe that the God of miracles can heal the sick in the church. We want to see more people healed because we're praying for more people because we believe that that is part of what God has done. One of the thing, one of the, we, we are in a process, by the way, of beginning to establish elders here at the river. We have an advisory board that's been operating as elders, and that's myself. When Charlie was here, he was one of the elders, but Brian Marcioni and David Pucci are part of that team, and we're going to officialize these advisors as elders and also probably invite some more people into the eldership team. But one of the, one of the things I'm most thankful about these men is that they pray for you, and they believe for the sick to be healed. 
and they believe that the gospel transforms lives. And they teach and admonish people in that way. And therefore, I believe you have a solid foundation of covering for you as a church because that's how these men, we live our lives. We believe in sacrificial authority here at the church. We believe that authority is an upside-down authority, that we're not called to rule over you or to drive you, but we're called to serve you as Christ served the church. We're called to get up under you and empower you to be the people that God has you to be. We're called to, to live in a way that makes you big. That's our desire, is to make you big and to grow in everything that you've called, been called to be in Christ. Okay, real quickly, this is what your not, elders are not supposed to be. Arrogant, quick-tempered, heavy drinkers, violent, and dishonest. You look at that list and you're like, what church has an elder like that? I think we just want all of the angry fighters to come on up. We're going to lay hands on you and we're going to have you preach next week. I think what, what Paul is saying is, is that, and, and we know this to be true in our own world, don't we? It's amazing how a leadership gift can mask a broken life. I actually think that's what's happening in our political environment right now. I've heard so many people say, well, we just need a leader. Well, we don't need that kind of leader. You know, leadership can have, is a two-edged sword. It can lead us down the right path or it can lead us down the wrong path. We don't need leaders who can command a boardroom or can raise millions of dollars in a foundation but that have no character in their life. And as a result, when the rubber hits the road, when tough decisions for the sake of people are made, they're only thinking about themselves instead of those they're serving. That's true of the church. So that Paul would have to say this is indicative of our nature. That if we're not careful, we can get around us people that are charismatic, that are, that are flashy, that have good tongues and can speak really well, that have a great smile and that can inspire you to do great things. But on the inside, they're brawlers. They're drunk, drunken people. They don't have any discipline in them. They have not given themselves or yielded themselves to the work of God in their life in a way that's transformative. I'm going to come back to that because there's grace for all of us. But they should be hospitable, love good, live wisely, be just, devoted to God and disciplined. That word hospitable there is not uh, the word that speaks of us having our friends over for dinner, by the way. Although that's part of it. It's not the people that always have a party at their house that are always opening their doors. Actually, the word there, the, 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 the phrase there about being hospitable, hospitable what, what people in the context of this scripture would have understood, it was the person who welcomed a stranger, who was the person who would open their doors when somebody was in need that was traveling through the town and it needed a place to stay and a warm meal to eat, that they would take in people unknown because they trusted that God would not only want them to love people in this place of need, but that he would care for them in the place of safety or protection or the unknown that comes with strangers. Are we hospitable as leaders in that way? Do we love justice? Do we stand up for the poor and the helpless? Do we live wisely? Are we the ones who people are always going to because our life is stable and secure? Are we ones who pray and are disciplined in our lives? These are the people that God is calling us to be like 
And finally, that we would have such a strong faith in Jesus and the gospel that we'd be able to encourage others in our faith. That we would know Jesus, and I'll end with this, that we would have such a relationship with Jesus that when somebody challenges us in our faith, it bounces off of us because we know God. Does that make sense? It's, I, don't, I don't believe, and I, I do believe that part of what, what Paul is talking about is that they're, they are students of the word and that they can, have a, they can hold a good argument. But how many of you have really impacted somebody's life by a good argument? That's pretty rare. We need to be able to defend the faith scripturally, but we need to be able to defend the faith even more experientially by people knowing Christ in us. That when they encounter us, that not only do we have the knowledge up here, I'm not saying it's not good, but it's not just enough to have knowledge up here. Paul actually says this kind of knowledge puffs us up. It makes us think that we're better than other people because, well, we understand things a little bit better than you do. And if you would just listen to us, then you would be in a better place. No, that's part of it, but this has to be connected with a knowledge of God that is borne out in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we express love to one another, in the way that we encourage one another so that when somebody is in our life and they say, I don't know if I love Jesus or I don't know if I want to know Jesus, you're like, you don't want to know Jesus. Well, Jesus is my best friend. I'd love to introduce you to Jesus. Well, da 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 Well, yeah, let's talk about that. But in the context of talking about that, I want to love you with the truth as well. You know what I'm talking about? I think that's what Paul's saying here, and that's what leaders exhibit in their lives. Can I have the band come on up?